What's up, everybody? You can go ahead, take a seat. How's everybody doing? Wonderful? All right. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Jordan Howell. I'm on staff here. Love being on staff with Saw Company here at Veritas Church, and uh, we're stoked to have you guys out. Have a couple announcements for you. Number one, tonight is the last night for what? Student leadership. Good answer. Okay. So here at Salt Company, we do what we call student leadership. Here's what that means. We actually believe the best people to reach your campus, the best people to reach 18 to 22-year-olds in the city are 18 to 22-year-olds. Okay. That means that the 30-year-old with the mustache on Coe's campus actually is not the best strategy. Weird, right? But that also means that we as a church actually prioritize equipping you to make disciples. So we're not just going to say like, hey, go get them. Good luck. We actually want to say, hey, we're on your team. We're with you. We're for you. We want to help you know how to best share your faith and make disciples. And so student leadership, here's who it's not for. It's not for the people who think they have it all together. Because who in this room has it all together? You don't. Silence, right? None of us have it all together. Student leadership is for people who are like, hey, all I know is I love Jesus. I want to make him known. And man, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a mess, but I'm moving forward in grace, right? That's, that's who it's for. And when I look at Acts 4 and I look at Peter and John's response, who, by the way, I'm like kind of beasts in the faith. Here's how they're described. Common uneducated, ordinary men who had been with Jesus. And I'm like, sign me up. That's how I actually was like, oh, I think I can do this Christianity thing because I don't have to be perfect, right? So here is my plea with you. If you're even like fractionally, marginally considering like, hey, I think I might be interested in student leadership, go ahead and fill out an application. The worst thing that can happen is you fill out an application and you decide a week, two weeks from now that you're like, ah, I decided I'm not going to do it. And at that point, I would still say, I think it was worth it for you. Right? I talked to um, one of our current leaders last year and showing up to the interview, she's like, I was shocked at how much I learned about myself and how much I learned about Jesus and even applying for student leadership. And so if you're like, hey, I want to grow in my knowledge of who Jesus is and I want to learn more about myself, go ahead and fill out an application, right? Like, that's a noble task. So tonight, do at midnight. Are we clear? We good on that? Okay. To the 18 of you that have already applied, thank you. I'm proud of you. Yeah, that application takes time and it's also hard, like ask you some questions where you're like, ooh, I probably haven't been asked that before, but it's good for you, and I'm really proud of all of you that have applied. So uh, that's announcement number one. Announcement number two, we have a late night tonight. Can you say late night? Late night, that means cereal, yep. And we're having a, a pretty, uh, you could say, weighty conversation. It's on gender roles in the church, okay? So last week, Cole was teaching in Titus 1. He covered about elders, in Titus 1, and he had said, hey, 
the, the office of elder or overseer is for men, as we see in Titus 1. And then in tonight's text, we're going to see uh, Paul teaching Titus about how men and women both contribute in the church. And so I'm not going to be able to cover all of gender roles in tonight's sermon, and that's really not the point of Titus 2 is to talk about gender. And so I'm not going to let that sidetrack me. We're going to get into the text, and we're going to talk about what it's meant to talk about. But based on the fact that gender in the church is a, is a cultural moment topic, we want to equip you on that. We want to let you know what the Bible says. And so we would encourage you after tonight, head on upstairs and let's open up our Bibles and see what God says about gender roles in the church. Sound good? Love it. All right. Grab your Bibles. We're in Titus. Shocker. Uh, We're in week three of our series called Titus, the good life. And when we say the good life, we're actually talking about the godly life, the life that God, who created you, actually wants you to live. And so if God created you, he actually knows what's best for you. And so if we say, hey, we want to live the good life, we should be saying, God, I want to live the life that you have set out before me. And if you know what's best, let's open up the Bible and see what you say is best for me. So week one, we talked about good truth, this idea that Good truth actually leads to godliness. If you understand what you believe about God and it's true, it actually should show up in how you behave. Your beliefs and your behavior are connected. And then last week, Cole talked about good leadership, specifically leadership in the church. And he talked about how God prioritizes internal character more than external skill. Good news for a guy like me too, right? It's like, hey, I'm actually looking more at your heart than what everybody else can see on the outside. And one thing that Cole said that stuck out with me is like, God cares about who your leaders are because he wants you to pursue him. And so if he wants you to pursue him, you need leaders that are pursuing God, right? If you're going to follow the leader, you're ultimately going to follow who the leader's following. So We need leaders that are following Jesus. And then tonight, we get to this idea of good design. So we're talking about particularly God's good design for the church. And as a leader of a college ministry, I'm telling you, this message is super, super, super important for you. Because what we do here, this is not the church, okay? This is the college ministry of the church, but this in and of itself is not the church. And so Salt Company exists as a college ministry of the local church because we want to train your instincts for a lifetime of following Jesus. Meaning one day you will get too old for Salt Company and we will tell you, please leave the room, right? You're making everybody else feel weird, okay? You're the old one. It's time to belong to the local church. And that's actually designed to help you follow Jesus, not just for the next four semesters, but for the next 40 plus years. That's what Veritas Church is for you. And so we say we value forever more than semesters, meaning I care more about how you follow Jesus as a 50-year-old than I do as you as a 20-year-old. You guys clear on that? Like, my win is for you to not peak in college, but Lord willing, to cross paths with you 
30 years from now and for you to still be following Jesus. And in order for that to be true, you need the church. Okay? A couple other reasons why you should care about the church. It is, in the Bible, described as the bride of Christ. So if you love Jesus, you actually need to love the church. The church is who Jesus laid his life down for. And Ephesians 3 would say, the church is how the manifold wisdom of God is put on display. And so how we do church actually matters if we want people to see God. And if we do it wrong, we actually might rob them of the opportunity to see God. So when we say God's good design, what makes a church good? Any ideas in your mind? It's like, man, I know when I went to college, I looked for churches after I came to know Jesus my junior year, and I was like, hey, this church has donut holes. Sounds good to me, right? I'm like, they're feeding me. There's more college students here. Seems like a fun vibe. The pastor remembered my name. He tells funny, funny jokes, tells stories I relate to. And those were all things that like drew me into the church. But the question is like, are those the right things? Like, what is a good church for you? What stands out? Is it, man, they have great teaching. I love the music. Man, makes me feel good. All my friends go there. I don't know what it is for you, but at the end of the day, I really don't care what, what good is to you because it's not about what you think. It's about what God says. So if God created the church and he says, this is the good design for the church, this is what it looks like, that's what I care about. And so we're going to open up. We're going to read Titus 1 through 10. We're going to read the entire text, and I'm going to walk you through four marks of God's good design. So if you're a note taker, one, two, three, four, four things we see about God's good design for the church, all right? We're just going to read straight through. We're going to unpack it together. Okay, verse one, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. If you have a physical Bible, underline self-controlled every time you see it, okay? Self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, again, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. All right, a lot going on there. You're probably thinking, I don't know what I just read. 
Hopefully, we can fill in the blanks for you. Okay, so four marks of God's good design. Number one, in God's good design, he created a church united around sound doctrine. Okay, sound doctrine. We see that at the very first verse and in the last verse we covered. It says, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And at the very end, he's talking about so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but this goes all the way back to week one. What we believe really matters. Okay? Having a proper understanding actually has a huge impact on whether or not we can behave the way God wants us to. And so, again, when it comes to what we teach in the Bible, I am not interested in what you, what you say, what you think, or what you feel. And that's not me being distant and non-empathetic with you. I'm just saying, I don't care what I think. I don't care what I say or what I feel. We care about what God says. And if he has spoken to us through his word, we actually get the opportunity to say, wow, I don't have to hear from another human. I can actually hear from God himself. And so we crack open the Bible each week and we say, God, put us aside. What do you want to say to us? The problem is, you guys, our culture is not like that. If you have a physical Bible, you could probably flip one page, literally, this is what I'm doing, one page to the left, and you're going to see in 2 Timothy 4 these words. This is Paul writing to, to another man named Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Teach the Bible, in other words. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is scary, honestly. In a day and age of cultural Christianity, where everybody can go get their Christian tattoo, wear a cross necklace, call themselves a Christian, and then hop on Google and find somebody to affirm their teaching, this is dangerous, okay? You are not to go looking for teachers that just approve everything you think. It's actually the other way around. You're supposed to come to the Word of God and say, God, regardless of what I think, regardless of what I feel, regardless of even what Jordan has said to me from stage, what do you say in your word? And you are to look at your Bible intently and you are to say, God, what you say is true. That's what we care about, sound doctrine. And the problem with this idea of going and just getting whatever comes easiest to us is it's out to kill us, okay? I don't know about you guys, the word picture that comes to mind for me is 600-pound life. Has anybody watched that show, by the way? Wow. I, like, kind of want to laugh, and then I also want to cry at the same time because I'm like, how is this real? Like, it just doesn't seem like this should actually happen. 
But this is a sad reality, okay? People eat themselves to the point of being 600 pounds or more, and they are confined to a bed. And guess what the hard thing to do is? Move or diet, right? The easy thing to do is to keep eating. And the problem is so many of these people end up this way because guess what happens? People keep feeding them. They go to family members who say, hey, I want two large Domino's pizzas in two two liters. And the family member can't do the hard thing and tell them what's true. They just go get them the food. That is tragic. And I'm telling you, the same thing is happening to you when you are going just to find somebody to affirm whatever you want to believe. That person is just feeding you into your spiritual death. And what you need is someone like Dr. Now, if you've seen that show, that dude's a little maniac, by the way, um, to say, you need to wake up. You are eating yourself to death. Here's your diagnosis. Here's your treatment plan. Here's how you get better. I'm going to do surgery on you, and guess what? It's going to hurt, and moving is going to hurt, but here's your path forward. That's what sound doctrine is for us, you guys. When we talk about the doctrine of God our Savior, okay, 2 Timothy 3, which comes right before this, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That means when we come to the Bible, it's actually probably going to hurt because we actually need to be corrected and trained and that's Dr. Now saying to us, wake up, you have a sin problem. What you are doing is killing you, literally. You need to stop. But the good news is, it doesn't stop there. In verse 17, it says, that we're corrected and trained, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. It's the idea of, you have to understand the bad news before you understand the good news. Okay, you have to get your diagnosis that you have a sin problem to understand that you actually have a Savior. And you have a Savior who came and entered into your sin problem. That is the good news of all of the Bible. If you just took Gospel in one you saw from Genesis to Revelation, we have a God who desires to be with us. A God who put on flesh, died your death that you deserved, and rose again so that you can be reunited with him. That's the doctrine of God our Savior. But if we want to embrace that, we also have to acknowledge, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and God, I need you to teach me. So, number one, a church united around sound doctrine. Number two, in God's good design, he created a church with godly leaders. Okay, uh, in verses seven and eight, in our text in Titus, Paul actually kind of segues, and he starts to talk directly to Titus. And he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. What he's telling Titus is this. He's like, yes, I want you to teach the truth. But a good leader doesn't just know the right answers or say the right things. A good leader is living a godly life. A good leader 
is someone that actually, as they talk to you, is speaking to you with a shepherd's voice. They're not just up on a pedestal telling you, I'm right, you're wrong, get on my level. They're saying, guys, Jesus is worth it. And from what I know to be true and what I've seen in my own life, here's how he's better than what you're chasing. And so I'm telling you, if you are a part of a church, you are actually called to, number one, inspect the life of your leader and see if how they're living their life actually matches up with the Bible you're reading. Because as we saw last week, there's people who claim to be leaders that are leading people astray, and you need to watch out. They're dangerous. But number two, I would just encourage you, listen to their tone, okay? If a pastor is ever in a position where he is not showing himself to be a person in need, he is robbing you of the gospel. And so this is the differentiation between someone preaching at you and preaching to you. And so as you sit under teaching of the Bible, I think it's helpful to say, wow, does, does this pastor seem to be shaped by God's word? Does he seem to be taking seriously the things that he's studying and talking about? That is a leader worth following. And I'm telling you, you guys, this role of pastor it is not a glamorous position, and it's not something to be fought for. I think all the fighting over, like, who gets to be a pastor and who doesn't get to be a pastor is almost always held by people that have no idea what it means to be a pastor. Because if you look at James 3, it says, you actually should not desire to be a pastor because guess why? You have a stricter judgment. Tough news for me, right? It made me run away from ministry when I first felt like God was calling me into ministry, I'm like, no way, Lord. To be held to a higher judgment and to look at the gospel of John and say, this is what a good shepherd does. He lays his life down for his sheep. To answer late night calls to help people fight their sin. And ultimately that one day I will stand before God and I will give an account, not just for how I lived my life, but how I led you. That's a challenging task. And that's where it's like, man, when you understand what it means to be a pastor, not a lot of people are fighting for that position. It's worth noting, okay? Especially as we jump into the late night tonight, this role of pastor is not for everybody, and it's not to be desired by everybody. Number three, in God's good design, he created a church made up of men and women of multiple generations. Hopefully you, you heard that and you saw that in the text as we just march through verses 2 through 6, looking at, as Paul is saying, hey, let, let your teaching accord with sound doctrine. Oh yeah, and by the way, tell the older men this, tell the older women this, tell the younger women this, tell the younger men this. The primary emphasis of Titus 2 is actually that Godly teaching has implications for people in every sphere of life. Whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, whether you're old, whether you're young, this actually is for everybody. And the reality is, you guys, we need each other. We need the church. And here's the problem. I already said this. You don't get this on a Thursday night. 
when you show up on a Thursday night, here's what you get. People in the same stage and season of life as you. And that is a good thing. Like, I want you to know community is good. And I hope that you have found a friend group here that you love and that you can trust. But the problem is, this is not the church. Younger men, you need older men in your life. And younger women, you need older women in your life. That's just a reality. Because here's the deal. I don't know if you know this or not yet. You don't know everything. Weird. It's a hard concept to, to wrestle with. I was just talking with Tanner about this today. Like, hey, you hit a certain age and you're like, oh man, mom and dad were right. And then it's like the gut check of, that means I wasn't right. Oh my gosh, weird. So it's pretty humbling when I'm a 30-year-old and I still have to call my mom and be like, hey, I've washed this shirt twice, still has a stain in it. Google's not helping me out. What's going on? Like, I still need people that are older than me speaking into my life. And my dad passed away in 2016, but the, the reality is I'm raising two kids right now. And though I can't go to my dad, I can go to so many men in this church and I can say, hey, help me understand how you parented a two-year-old. Help me understand how you balance work and family life. Because I've never had to do that before, right? But they have, and I need their wisdom. And the problem is, when we forsake this, we end up making a mistake very similar to a guy by the name of Rehoboam. So, 2 Chronicles 10, there's this guy by the name of Rehoboam. If you don't know him, you probably know his father, Solomon. Anybody heard of Solomon? Okay. Really wise dude, lots of money, you know it. Okay, well, the problem with Solomon is he was an oppressive tyrant. And he ruled with an iron fist. And when he died, Rehoboam takes his place, and Israel comes before him, and they're like, hey, will you please stop being oppressive to us? In other words, please be nice. And he goes, go away for three days, come back, I'll give you an answer. And then here's what he does. He goes and he talks to elders. He talks to older men. He says, hey, what should I do? And they say, hey, if you be kind to these people, Israel will follow you forever. And he's like, okay, say less. No, he actually goes over and he says to his friends, hey, the older people told me this, but what do you think I should do? And his friends told him exactly what he wanted to hear, which is this hey, don't let up. You know, they think Solomon was tough. Show them you're tougher. Oppress them harder. Be the king that you were meant to be. Rule with authority. And so he commits absolute folly. And to his destruction, what, what he does is he goes and he listens, listens to his friends who told him exactly what he wanted to hear. Rather than listening to the wise advice of the elders who told him what was right. And Israel packed up and left. They ditched him. He was a trash king. And part of it was because he just listened to the people that wanted to tickle his ears. And so, all of that to say, one of the benefits of having older people in your life is the dumb tax has already been paid for you, okay? All the stupid mistakes that you could make, someone else has gone before you and has already made them, okay? You're talking to one of them. If you're like, 
hey, Jordan, I'm thinking about doing this this weekend. What do you think? I'm probably going to say, hey, I've been in college before. I've done that stupid thing. Not worth it, right? But then as you progress in life, again, think about it. This isn't just college. This is parenting, marriage, money, like career. These are big issues. Where should I live? Who should I live with? How am I managing my time? These are questions that you should actually be going to people that are older and wiser than you and saying, hey, from your experience, is this a good decision or not? And then be willing to listen. It's one thing to go and ask. It's another thing to be willing to listen. Because Rehoboam went and asked, didn't he? But then he just went and he got the easy answer. And just like 600-pound life, he was fed the answer that led to his destruction. So you need a, multi, a multiple-generation church. Last but not least, in God's good design, he created a church that prioritizes godliness. So anytime you look at Scripture, this is just a Bible reading hack, and you see things getting repeated, that means it's important. Right? So three times in this text, I see this, this phrasing that says, outside people are actually looking at the church, and how we live actually impacts what people think about God. Okay? It's, it's stated twice in a negative sense. Verse 5, it's like, let your behavior reign through so that the word of God may not be reviled or blasphemed. Verse 8, sound speech, so that an op opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So twice it's like, hey, let your behavior ring true so that people don't look at you and slander the word of God because of you. I think the biggest issue is when we begin to really fit in with the world and people are like, oh yeah, Christians, I know a couple of them. They get drunk with me every Friday. Oh yeah, Christians, they're the gossipers. They're the slanderers. They're the ones who, you know, swear up and down the street just like me and my buddy. They see nothing different about you. Unless we actually behave with godly doctrine. And then we see in positive light, in verse 10, it says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is like, you guys, in the way you live as a weak, broken, screwed up mess. Can I get an amen? You actually get to make the gospel beautiful. That is amazing that God would use us to say, you know what? I know you're messed up, but as you strive to follow me, people are going to look at you and they're going to say, wow, there is something special there. And I think it's worth saying, okay, the world around us might not love the gospel that we are living out because it confronts them. And if the world hated Jesus, there's a good chance it is probably going to hate us too when we take a stand. But it's not because we're people filled with hate. It's because the gospel confronts them and it costs them something. What we are called to do is live a life of godliness so that when people look at us, they might say, I don't like what it would cost me, but I like what it looks like. 
And I've seen this played out several times, even in the last year. People walking in these doors time and time again where I'm like, hey, tell me about your faith. I'm an atheist. No thanks. I'm like, I'm so glad you're here. What brings you back? The people here are amazing. I have such great friends. They care about me so deeply. I'm like, yeah, you want to know why? (laughs) And he's like, not really. And I'm like, I know, because the answer is Jesus. You guys, we have the opportunity to actually put the gospel on display. And as we look at this text, I want to, real quick, because I'm limited on time, just talk about the cultural context. So in Titus 2, 1 through 10, what you are not getting is, is an exhaustive list of what it means to be obedient to God, okay? Paul is writing to a very specific person in a very specific context, specifically telling Titus in Crete, hey, tell your people in the churches there to do this. And so when he starts saying like, hey, teach older women not to be slanderers or slaves of much wine, that's not saying like, oh, the men don't also need to be slaves of much wine. He's probably getting report that like, the women there are struggling with the drinking problem. Are we tracking there? Okay. And what I want to explain most, because I'm talking to a room full of younger women and younger men, we're going to park here. When Paul is writing to Titus about younger women, he is assuming, he's making the assumption that younger women in Crete are married and have children. And that's not the case in here. Can I get another amen? Amen. Yeah, y'all are probably cool with that, okay? So when you look at a text like this, you're probably thinking, okay, what does this mean for me? That's an appropriate question to be asking. And first and foremost, I would say, you actually are called to be taught by older women, number one. So who's the older woman in your life that is like helping you grow in your godliness? But number two, I think if you're not married and have children, but you're like, man, one day, if God would be gracious enough to give me a husband and kids, I would love to be a wife and a mother. I'm like, that's a noble task. And I think, don't wait until you're engaged to be married or pregnant to learn how to be a wife or a mom. Get around someone who is living in a godly marriage and is parenting in a godly manner and say, man, I want to learn how you do it. You don't have to wait for that. You can start doing it. But what's worth noting here in this, I think it's um, culturally, most women's guard goes up because they're like, wait a second. Okay, working at home. Here's what this does not mean. That women must only be homemakers, okay? That is not what is being said in this text. What Paul is actually telling Titus here is like, hey, help women understand that if they are married and they have children, they have a primary responsibility to the family. That is true. But ultimately, he doesn't want them to be lazy. Okay, that's what was happening in this culture is that women were abandoning their homes and going door to door and just being idle and lazy. And so when he's talking working at home, He is not restricting women from vocational pursuit. That's important for us today, right? Because it's like, man, this seems oppressive. They didn't have work outside the home back then. Literally working at home, that's how many of them made their income. They were like 
weaving and making like ordinary goods to sell at the market. So they were working, but they were also told, hey, prioritize the home. If you're a wife, understand that your husband is a gift. If you have children, understand that your children are a gift. And I'm telling you, the same thing is said for husbands. If you keep reading your Bible, you would understand that the task of a husband is this. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wow. So to, to love my wife, to love Ellie, here's what I'm supposed to do. Die to my personal preferences for her flourishing. Sounds easy, right? No. But that's what Jesus did for me. And out of the overflow, it's like, man, that's what I should do for my wife. And in the same way, when we see in this text, wives are called to submit to their husbands. Submission is not becoming a doormat. Submission is actually a happy response to great biblical leadership. And so we see in Scripture, Christ submits to the Father, okay? The church submits to Christ. Jesus laid his life down for me, so the only thing that makes sense for me is like, I want to live for Jesus. And in the same way, when the husband lays his life down for his wife and says, I want to die to my personal preferences for your flourishing, she's like, wow, I trust you. I want to follow you. That is a beautiful design in marriage. And we actually get the opportunity to image Christ to each other. When I die to myself for Ellie's flourishing, I get to show her Jesus. And when she says, Jordan, I trust your leadership and I follow you, that's showing me Christ. We actually get that mutual opportunity. And so, just want to real quick say, hey, I made you underline self-controlled because that is the only thing that is commanded in Titus 2 for older and younger men and women to be self-controlled. And so the question for you is, how's your self-control? Tough. Are you controlled by your desires or your emotions? When you want something, do you just do it? Do you go get it? If you feel something, do you just say it? Because ultimately, the, the lack of self-control results in all sorts of sin. Think of fits of anger, lust, greed, gossip, swearing, immoral sexual conduct, whether that be with your boyfriend, girlfriend, or with a screen, substance abuse, your constant gaining of possessions, and this one's hardest for me, weird, gluttony. That's a lack of self-control. What some people struggle with with porn, I struggle with with food. It's like, wow, I need a break. I want an escape. I want pleasure. I'll go eat. That's a lack of self-control. And so the problem is, self-control actually takes our desires and makes us a slave to them. And what Paul is telling Titus to tell his people, and what I am telling you is, it's not initially wrong to have that desire, okay? When we have that initial thought or desire, here's what we're actually called to do in 2 Corinthians 5, or 2 Corinthians 10. 
verse 5, it says, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And so self-control says, I have this initial feeling, I have this initial emotion, I have this initial desire, and now I'm supposed to take it captive and say, God, is this from me or is this from you? Okay, what do you think about this and then what do you want me to do with it? And actually, self-control is a gift of the Spirit. If you're reading in Galatians, one of the gifts of the Spirit is self-control. So God, in his spirit, who lives in those of you who have said, yes, Jesus is my savior, he is giving you the self-control you need to be able to say no to your desires and to say yes to God. How's your self-control? And then lastly, I'm going to fly through it. Bond servants. An equivalent would be employees, okay? Bond servants had rights. They could make a living. They could even buy their release, These people actually, as a benefit to themselves, said, I'm going to submit myself to a master to make a living. You're doing that when you get a job. You're saying, I'm going to submit myself to you so that I can make a living. And the command here for you, anybody in here have a job? Yeah, lots of you. Okay, this is going to wreck you. You are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, and not Pilfering. Pilfering means stealing. And many of you would say, I have never stolen in my life. I'm here to change your mind, okay? 51% of the workforce in America is considered disengaged. That means you show up to work and you're not actually thinking about what you're doing. You're kind of just going through the motions. And when things get slow, you're checking TikTok, you're texting people back, you're disengaged. At least half of you in this room, okay? Read the statistic. Gallup estimates that employee disengagement costs the United States economy $350 billion a year. That means every unengaged employee costs their employer $2,000 a year. So if you're showing up to work and you're going through the motions, you have stolen about $2,000 a year from your employer. That must stop. That must stop, because to do this is to actually damage your witness for Christ. Okay, really quick application. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. If you guys want to actually just look at these four things, a church with sound doctrine, application for you, be like a Berean. In Acts 17, there's a group of people called Bereans, and here's what they did. They tested everything against Scripture. So, so for you, test everything against Scripture. Number two, for a church with godly leaders, I would say, based on Hebrews 13, which we covered here a couple weeks ago at Veritas, submit to good and godly leaders who are shepherding your soul. Actually, place yourself under the care of a pastor who can shepherd your soul. It's good for your health. For a church made up of multiple generations, I would say, number three, commit to a multi-generational church. Go to a church that actually has older men and older women that can invest in your life. And one of the best ways that you can do that here at Veritas is actually getting involved in serving, okay? We've had a serving push for the last three weeks, 
getting into a kid's classroom actually allows you to do two things. Number one, take care of people that are younger than you, so you actually already, in a way, get to live this out. And number two, you get to rub shoulders with people that are older than you. You get to meet people that are in a different stage and season of life, and you can say, wow, we should grab dinner sometime. And chances are they're going to say, okay, come over, we'll feed you. Free food. I'm just saying, that should, all of you guys should be like, free food, sign me up. And the food won't even be the best thing you get from them. You're going to get a wealth of knowledge from people that are older and wiser than you. Okay, number four, church that prioritizes godliness, prioritize your godliness. This isn't about your comfort. Nothing in the terms and conditions of following Jesus say, hey, this is rainbows and butterflies. He says, hey, you want to be my follower? Take up your cross and follow me. And the cross was an instrument of torture and death. And the good news is Jesus ultimately bore the cross for you and me. He took on the instrument of torment and death for us. And now he's saying, hey, because I am Savior, I also am Lord. And so the response is, you take up your cross, you die to yourself, and actually begin to live for me. And as we live this out, Salt Company, here's what we actually end up with. A generation that actually has nothing evil to be said of them. Can you imagine? I mean, I thought I had it bad as a millennial. Y'all are Gen Z. People can't stand you. I'm just saying, from the outside, culture is just ragging on Gen Z. But one of the greatest things that I get to do as a college pastor is to stand up and advocate on your behalf and say, you don't know the same Gen Z I know. Seriously, if you would come in this room, if you would be around these people, you would understand that they are humble, that they love Jesus, that they want more of his word, that they want to belong to his church. That's what gets to be said of you when you actually take this message seriously and plug into the church. And Lord willing, I think one day, you won't just be the younger men and the younger women that are living this out. You'll get to be the older men that are teaching the younger men. You get to be the older women that are teaching the younger women. Heck, some of you might even be discipling my kids. And that is such a joy to think about. Little Blaze and Leo sitting under the leadership of one of the dudes in this room. So exciting. And so I just want to pray that this would be true of us. Uh, so join me as we pray. Nils and the team are going to come back up to worship. Father, um, thank you for your good design in the church, God, that you've given us your word, um, which is truth, God, that we don't have to make things up, we don't have to follow our desires, we get to listen to you. God, thank you for, for godly leaders, uh, thank you for the elders of this church, and um, yeah, the way that they seek you, uh, the way that they desire to know you and to know your word. God, thank you for uh, your design of a church that is multi-generational. It's not just about one gender, one age. God, you use everybody. Everybody for your good, your glory. God, and thank you for just this opportunity to be godly. Nothing in us Nothing in us would desire to follow you apart from your spirit at work in us. 
Jesus, thank you that you lived, you died, you rose again, and you now indwell us with your spirit, actually pleading with us to seek life with you, to die to ourselves so that we can actually experience the good life that you have given us. So God, as we just look at this message, take it to heart, I pray that you would help us, help us to, to seek you, to obey you, and to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, to make the gospel beautiful to those around us so that we wouldn't be praised, but Jesus, that you would be praised. We pray this in your name. Amen.